You are listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Revealing Retina, presented by the American Retina Foundation, the charitable arm of the ASRS, the American Society of Retina Specialists. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Levitt, and joining me today is Dr. Alan Ruby. Dr. Ruby practices in Royal Oaks, Michigan. He's clinical assistant professor of biomedical sciences in the Eye Research Institute of Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, and he's a recipient of the American Society of Retina Specialists Honor Award in 2009. Today we're going to discuss diabetic retinopathy, both non-proliferative and proliferative, but in terms of treatment modalities for each type of retinopathy. Dr. Ruby, welcome. Uh, thank you very much. Let's go ahead and start and discuss just briefly a review of non-proliferative and proliferative diabetic retinopathy, how they differ. Non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy refers to changes in the retina itself. So these are all within the plane of the retina and include such changes as microaneurysms, hard exudates, which are deposits of lipid material, hemorrhages throughout the retina itself, and even small little infarcts of the retina, which are called cotton wool spots. Now, all of these changes actually occur within the retina. Now, when we refer to proliferative diabetic retinopathy, these are the growth of blood vessels outside of the plane of the retina. So there are actually blood vessels that start in the retina and start to grow up on the undersurface of the vitreous, the vitreous being the gel in the eye. And it's these blood vessels that, as they grow, can lead to retinal detachment or bleeding in the eye, which can lead to severe visual loss as the patient goes on. In non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, how is the vision affected? In non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, the most common cause of decreased vision is from what is referred to as diabetic macular edema, or swelling in the center of the retina in the fovea. In a small number of patients, patients can also have capillary closure or ischemia and can develop ischemic maculopathy, although this is much less common than diabetic macular edema. And once the edema develops, what can be done to reduce it? Now, we've been very fortunate in that there have been modalities available for many years in treating the edema. The early treatment diabetic retinopathy study, which were completed in the 70s, showed that laser photocoagulation to areas of leakage and to focal areas of leakage, which are called microaneurysms, can reduce the risk of further visual loss by about 50%. And the standard treatment that we have currently for macular edema is with laser treatment. Now, more recently, there have been studies that have suggested that some injectable drugs such as steroids or what are referred to as anti-VEGF, anti-vascular endothelial growth factor modulators may actually improve visual outcome in patients undergoing laser photocoagulation. And this is just a recent publication that will be coming out in literature within the next month or so. When you use laser to stop areas of leakage, how do you identify those areas of leakage? Those areas are able to be identified in something called fluorescein angiography. Fluorescein angiography is a test by which the image is generated by a camera, a fundus camera, by looking directly into the eye and focusing on the retina. A dye is injected through a peripheral vein that dye circulates into the eye, and we can actually directly image the area that's involved so that we can identify on these photographs areas of leakage and then use those areas of leakage as a guide to help us determine which areas need to be treated with laser. Right, so the photograph is basically in the room with you when you're looking at the eye and treating. That is correct. How rapidly will a patient notice an improvement after they've had laser treatment? Now, that's one of the things we've been trying to improve upon because the change in the vision after laser is incredibly slow. 
because you basically have two phases of healing. You have the initial phase, which is the closure of the areas of leakage from the laser photocoagulation, and then you have the resorption of the fluid. So the body has to get rid of the fluid that has already accumulated, and it takes probably three or four months for that to occur. So the majority of the patients really do not see any change in their vision for a good three to four months following a laser treatment. The edema doesn't decrease totally, but the vision can improve? That is correct. It's interesting. We have modalities which allow us now to measure the thickening of the retina, and there is not a strict correlation between retinal thickness or edema and visual acuities, and we're not entirely sure how to explain that. So there are some patients who will have a mild decrease in the amount of swelling, but a more marked improvement in visual acuity or the flip-flop where we see all of the fluid go away, but unfortunately the vision doesn't improve to the extent we would expect based on the resolution of the fluid. And how often can the laser treatment be applied? In the studies, the laser was done once every three months. So in the majority of the patients, we'll treat them, bring them back again in about three months, and if there are still areas of leakage seen on angiography, go ahead and retreat them again. Are there any other modalities for trying to reduce this fluid? There are. There have been limited studies looking at other treatments, such as intravitreal injections of steroid. And what the steroid trial showed was that patients who received steroids did have some reduction in the amount of the swelling. But in fact, it appeared that laser treatment still was superior in terms of long-term success and more importantly, in reduction in complications. Now, there is a more recent study that just was released, the injection of an antivascular endothelial growth factor modulator in combination with laser treatment actually had better visual outcomes than using laser alone. So it may be that the use of both of these modalities together or consecutively may allow the patient to get resolution of the fluid more rapidly and more sustainably and lead to a better overall visual outcome. Have there been any studies including uh, steroids with the other two? There have been. In some of these arms, the patients were randomized to steroid alone versus steroid and laser treatment. And it appears as though the steroid does give some type of short-term benefit but that the laser in of itself may be responsible for the long-term reduction in the amount of fluid. And if you have a patient that really doesn't improve, what can we offer them? Well, we have studies that have shown that uh, diabetic vitrectomy, which is the removal of the vitreous in the eye, may lead to the resolution or improvement in the amount of macular edema. So one of the ways that we can treat these patients is if they have failed laser treatment, if they have failed laser treatment plus other adjuvant injections, We sometimes can offer them a vitrectomy, in which case the vitreous is removed and a very thin layer of tissue, which is sitting on the retina, is also removed. And it appears that by relieving the traction on the blood vessels in the back of the eye that we may be able to reduce the amount of swelling. And the success rate varies. Some reports will show up to 50% of patients may have a reduction in the amount of swelling and some marginal improvement in their vision. And if the edema has been there for a length of time, does that limit the potential visual improvement even if the edema is absorbed? Very much so. The retina works very much like brain tissue because it's really an extension of brain being neural tissue. And what happens is the rods and cones, after having chronic edema, do have some breakdown. And so even when the edema completely goes away, you may still have a permanent reduction in the vision because the cells are not able to regenerate. For those of you who were just tuning in, you are listening to The Revealing Retina on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Roy Levitt, and I'm speaking with Dr. Alan Ruby, and we are discussing treatment modalities for diabetic retinopathy. 
We've just talked about treatment for non-proliferative type of diabetic retinopathy, and now we're going to talk about proliferative disease. What is the first line of treatment for proliferative diabetic retinopathy, Alan? The first line of treatment is laser photocoagulation. And what we do is we use a laser beam to destroy parts of the retina that are not directly responsible for our fine vision. And the theory behind that is that the lack of blood flow throughout the retina is sending off a stimulus for these blood vessel growth. And if you can use the laser to destroy these parts of the retina, you may be able to reduce that stimulus and lead to regression of the blood vessels throughout the eye. So basically we're inactivating or killing parts of the retina to relieve the stimulus. That is correct. That's at least the theory behind the mechanism of action. And what does that do to vision? Well, in the majority of patients, not much, because the areas that are treated do not affect the central vision. So the most common side effect of this type of laser is a slight reduction in peripheral vision, a slight reduction in night vision. Some of the patients may complain they're having a little bit more trouble reading without the reading glasses because it reduces the ability to accommodate or focus up close. And patients also sometimes will complain about a decrease in night vision. Right. And I remember one of the complaints in my practice was that patients had difficulty in accommodating both going from light to dark and from dark to light, accommodating to the light levels. Yeah, absolutely. And we think that we're not entirely sure the mechanism of that, but we feel it's on a couple of reasons. Uh, Number one, patients, because of their poor blood flow, are just not able to have their retina regenerate fast enough and accommodate going from light to dark. Basically, the cells, to some extent, get overwhelmed when they're in bright light, and the rods and cones don't have the ability to regenerate themselves to allow for that transition. Uh, The other thing is that when they do have the laser treatment, because it destroys parts of the peripheral retina, some of the patients may even become more photosensitive, having more difficulty with bright lights after laser, and that's a relatively common complaint that we hear. But the end result is that you're preventing a progression of the proliferative disease. Absolutely, and the studies are very, very clear that if you have a patient with what we refer to as high-risk proliferative diabetic retinopathy, uh, their risk of severe visual loss is upwards of 40% without laser treatment. And thankfully, with laser treatment, you're able to reduce that risk of severe visual loss down into the teens uh, versus a very, very high risk without treatment. And all of this is presupposing that the patient gets to you at a point where there's not hemorrhage and there's not significant scarring causing tractional detachment. And this is really the biggest problem, and you pointed out very accurately, is that prevention is really where we need to be focusing because the treatment worked great. Laser photocoagulation has shown to be incredibly effective in reducing complications, namely loss of vision. The problem is once they've developed traction or fibrosis, and there already has been damage to the retina, the laser at best will halt or reduce the risk of progression, but it's not able to reverse the damage. So we typically will tell patients that the goal at that point is to reduce the risk of further visual loss, but not necessarily improve the vision. Now, the use of anti-VEGF substances in non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy should be useful with proliferative disease as well. It is, and actually we've used the adjuvants such as anti-VEGF therapy For patients who have proliferative retinopathy that may not respond to laser photocoagulation, we also have used it in patients who are getting prepared for a vitrectomy, for surgery on the eye, to try to reduce the engorgement of the blood vessels in the eye and reduce the amount of intraoperative or postoperative bleeding. So this adjuvant actually has been incredibly helpful for us. Has this become routine? It is not. Currently, the standard of care still would be laser photocoagulation because the laser gives you a permanent reduction, we believe, in the levels of vascular endothelial growth factor in the eye. 
So you have patients who have undergone complete laser photocoagulation who may never reproliferate. The adjuvants that we're injecting in the eye typically only last for about four to six weeks. So you typically would have to continually re-inject the patient in order to get the blood vessels to go away. And one of the complications of proliferative diabetic retinopathy, or at least the loss of circulation in the retina, is the development of blood vessels on the iris causing a type of glaucoma. Correct. Now, that is referred to as neovascular glaucoma, and that's an extremely bad complication of diabetic retinopathy. Uh, the theory being that you have so much ischemia in the back of the eye and such high levels of vascular endothelial growth factor that you actually have diffusion up into the anterior segment of the eye and growth of vessels on the iris. These can most easily be readily identified by slit lamp examination in the ophthalmologist's office, and you basically see vessels right on the surface of the iris. And unfortunately, these vessels then grow in the drain system of the eye, which is the angle, and that drain system gets blocked off, leading to an increase in intraocular pressure, or what we refer to as glaucoma. Do the anti-VEGF injections affect that? They do. They work great. A lot of our patients who develop neovascular glaucoma who end up having glaucoma surgery in order to try to reduce their pressure will routinely have an injection of an anti-VEGF agent prior to the surgery. It makes the surgery technically less difficult. It reduces the risk of bleeding during surgery and also in some patients can have complete regression of the vessels and a normalization of their pressure, at least temporarily, while the medicine's working. So to get back to the retina, surgery is offered when? Surgery is usually offered when you have persistent growth of abnormal blood vessels despite maximal laser treatment. So that could be for a variety of reasons. It could be the patient came in at a later stage and they already had blood vessel growth with scar tissue leading to a retinal detachment and that retinal detachment would have to be repaired using surgery. It also could be used in patients who have growth of abnormal vessels in whom bleeding has already occurred and the ability of the retina specialist to treat the retina is hindered because they can't actually see the retina due to the bleeding. And those are the two main indications for what we refer to as diabetic vitrectomy, that is proliferation with vitreous hemorrhage or blood in the eye, or the development of a tractional retinal detachment, tractional detachment meaning blood vessels pulling on the retina leading to loss of vision from an area of retinal elevation. Great. Thanks very much, Alan. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Alan Ruby about diabetic retinopathy. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Levitt, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Revealing Retina, presented by the American Retina Foundation. We welcome your questions and comments about this or any other show. Please visit us at www.reachmd.com. Our new on-demand and our new podcast features will allow you access to our entire program library. Again, thanks for listening.